You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Hi, everyone. My name is Jacob, and I'm one of the partners here. And we are going to be reading from 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all, the, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. Honored to be with you tonight. Pray you've been encouraged in your time so far. Obedience. I wonder what you think when you hear that word. I know like when I hear that word, I start to think of being a kid, you know, and my parents telling me to do something for them. Uh, Maybe sometimes they would even say, hey, Obey me, you know, um, but obedience has that that kind of feel uh, of heaviness, right? Has that kind of feel of, of, of um, a parent to a child, maybe in a, a boss to an employee, right? There's all kinds of dynamics uh, that we are in that the uh, obedience factor plays into it. And we have all been in situations where we have had a boss or even a parent, or some other authority figure um, tell us to do something and it was like done in a way that was really harsh, right? It was done in a way that was really um, unkind. And so for many of us, when we think about obedience, it just has a heaviness to it, right? When you hear that word. And if you're a parent or if you're a boss or if you've been in any authority position yourself, You know, though, that in order for things to get done, in order for things to happen, in order for things to be done rightly or or for things to be done well, there has to be things obeyed, right? You have to give direction and that person has to then respond in obedience. But you know, if you've been in those positions, that that obedience is always imperfect. And this is, of course, no truer than a parent to a child relationship. I can think of so many times where I've asked one of my children to do something and they, they obeyed it mostly, but not all the way, or obeyed it a little bit, but, but, but not all the way. Their obedience was imperfect. And if you've been a boss or an authority figure of some kind, you've experienced that with people that have been under your care, under your watch. Obedience, at least on this side of eternity, in a human sense, is always imperfect. 
Really, our relationship with God has the same dynamic. We look at the scriptures, we see all kinds of things that the scriptures say for us to do. Commandments, directives, instructions. And you and I know ourselves, we are imperfect in our obedience to those things. Jesus actually said at one time in his earthly ministry, be perfect like me. I don't know if you've ever thought about that statement, but the statement to be perfect like Jesus for you and I, it's impossible. The reason why Jesus said that, but we know our ability to obey perfectly is, it just doesn't happen. Our obedience to God is always imperfect. And here's the thing about that imperfection. The Bible actually says that because of that imperfection, there is a curse on us. There is a wage that has to be paid because of that imperfection. The Bible says that the wages of that sin is death. So when we actually think about our imperfect obedience as we relate to God, it actually has severe consequences. And the bad news is that you and I can't make up the difference. Because of our imperfect obedience, someone has to come in and rescue us or we are doomed for death. The Bible thankfully, gives us a picture of a great rescue of someone who obeyed God perfectly in our place. And tonight, we, we want to talk about that as we continue our series that we began last week called Behold the Lamb, Jesus, Our Substitute, as we look at the story of Jesus, all of the parts of that story and how they all come together to tell the story of how you and I have been ransomed. This series is uh, a series that is going to lead us into Easter next week. And last week, Trey walked us through the first part of that story as we think about the incarnation of Jesus and his birth. Now, we need to say that though we're saying that that's the first part of the story, we also need to say that Jesus has always existed. So it's not the first part of his story. He has always been and always will be, but in our time and in our space, the incarnation is where Jesus, the story of Jesus happens in the culture of man. And tonight we wanna to look at the next piece of that story by looking at an essential part of our rescue story, the sinless life of Jesus. So I want to invite you to see two things tonight as we do that, and here they are. First, earthly objects never provide spiritual freedom. Earthly objects never provide spiritual freedom. And second, an eternal object offers real spiritual freedom. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to... Uh, the, the passage that you heard Jacob read, beginning there in verse 13, chapter 1 of, of 1 Peter. Now, real quickly, because we're in a, a, a series where we're going to be in some different books and different passages, let me just give you a, a real quick synopsis of what 1 Peter is about, what Peter is doing in this book. 
The big idea of 1 Peter is that those who persevere in faith while suffering persecution actually can find that they are full of hope. We've talked about this actually in the series in Romans we've been in as well. But Peter's going to talk about that all throughout his book. And he's going to say, you can enjoy your salvation in the here and now and ultimately in all of eternity because God's saving promise comes to you through the story of Jesus. In the beginning of chapter 1, where we find our passage today, Peter begins by just driving that idea home that, that through Jesus, you can be born again, you can be saved, you can be rescued and redeemed to a living hope, no matter what you're walking through. And then Peter moves on to talk how, about how this living hope motivates a certain way of living for the Christian. Look there at verse 13. In short, Peter says that we are called to be holy. We are called to live lives that in a culture that is against God is distinctive. We are to represent the kingdom of Christ within the larger kingdom of the world in a way that is countercultural within the larger culture. And he says that we have to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded. In verse 17, he says to conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord. And when Peter says that, when Peter says we are to conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord, that is shorthand for the broad idea of what he just said. It is what it looks like. When you and I fear the Lord and live in light of that, we will live distinctive and holy lives what Peter is talking about in that section. And then Peter quickly returns to the why of our call to living holy lives in light of the fear of the Lord. So look with me, if you would, at verse 18. And this is really the thrust of what we're going to look at tonight. Paul says here, or excuse me, Peter says here, beginning in this verse, that there is something that we are ransomed from. Look what he says. We are ransomed from our feudal ways. Peter is saying that we are given freedom, the chains of, of slavery that, that sin had clasped on us, which is what feudal ways are. Those things that we inherited from our, our father, um, we are now free, ransomed from those things because of what Jesus has done. And Paul says in, in Romans 5, as we think about this idea of of, of our forefathers and inheriting sin, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So Peter is wanting to remind us here that, that, that the slavery of sin is something that we're born with. But we can be ransomed from that feudal way, ways through Jesus. So Peter goes on and he says that we are ransomed with, uh, actually he tells us first what we're... Uh, weren't ransomed with, and we need to look at that just for a moment. Look what he says. He says, we were not saved from our sin with perishable things. And he mentions gold and silver. And in this time, the Roman Empire had about, some estimate, six million slaves uh, that were being used in, in this time. And the buying and the selling of all of these slaves were a major business. And then if a person wanted to free a loved one or a friend who was enslaved, they would pay the redemption price. They would purchase the slave for themselves. And that purchase would give that slave freedom. And that payment 
was typically done with silver and gold coins. And though that was a glorious thing for a slave, Peter's point here is that even those coins that were being used to free slaves, to ransom them, would one day decay. They would one day rust. They would become tarnished. They would go bad. So here's the first thing I want to invite you to see this evening. Earthly objects never provide spiritual freedom. I've told this story before, but Apple's late co-founder and CEO, Steve Jobs, um, had an, an obsession. And you might think his obsession was technology, and that was one of them, but those that were close to him actually said that he had a greater obsession than even technology. It was actually food. He was so consumed with food in, in, in ways that um, as a teenager, he experimented with strange diets, and at one point he went for two weeks eating only apples. And he described these various diets, and these, these are his words, as giving him an exhilarating sense of control. And his obsession worked at first. Again, it was a part of Job's larger project of attaining control over his surroundings and, and other people, but a lot of people that were close to him believed that his idolatrous relationship to food might have cost him his life. Here's why. In October of 2003, a scan turned up a rare version of pancreatic cancer that was slow growing, but this particular kind of cancer was the kind that was almost always curable with a prompt surgery. But instead of surgery, Jobs decided to fight by keeping to a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrot and, and fruit juices. And for nine months, as his friends and family pleaded with him to have the surgery, Jobs refused. And when the public became aware, and some of you may remember this, uh, the pictures towards the end of his life, his gaunt kind of figure, what few knew was that his body was wasting away not just because of the result of cancer, but his own dependence on control through food. And it wasn't until July of the next year that he decided to consent to get some part of his pancreas removed. And during that surgery, the doctors found that the cancer had spread in a way that he would never be free of it. And actually, a few years later, he died the age of 56. Now, this is a very extreme illustration that actually drives home what Peter is trying to tell us here in this passage. Job's cancer was terminal, but so was his idolatry. He was looking to something vertically to help fulfill him horizontally. This is the very definition of idolatry. And the, the reality is, we can tell this story and go, man, I would never do that. Man, I'd get that surgery. Not so fast. You and I are just like Steve. Idolatry is the way that you and I look to earthly things to give us spiritual freedom. Now, your issue may not be food, right? Maybe comfort or power, control, approval, all kinds of things. 
But at the core of all of our idolatry is a worship issue. So what do you give your unwavering worship to? What do you believe that if you had it, it would finally make you happy? It would finally make you free? Whatever the answers to those questions are reveals the idols of our heart. Your idol may not be food like jobs, like I said, but it's going to be something like that. Some things like that. It's something that you think will provide power or control or, or approval, something that you believe will bring happiness, freedom, joy that you long for. And when Peter says that you are ransomed not with things that are related to gold and silver, he is saying in a sense that there are earthly things, earthly objects that you and I look to all the time to bring us freedom. He's saying that is not what ransomed you. It can't save you. It can't free you. It can't rescue you. So what can? Look with me if you would again at verse 18. After saying that perishable things can't do that, uh, Peter brings the gospel to bear on all of this. Very quickly, he says, look, look there, let me read it again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with, look there, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Uh, Peter's point here is that in order for us to be truly saved, to be truly ransomed, to be truly free, we have to be saved by something that is imperishable. We have to be ransomed by something that is indestructible, unfading, and undying. And he really says two things here. We are rescued by one, the blood of the lamb, because of two, the perfection of the lamb. Now, next week is Easter Sunday, and we're going to talk a lot about how both the death, the blood of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, Peter references in the latter part of this passage, how those things bring ransom and rescue as well. But I want you to notice something that's kind of tucked in here in this passage. I want you to notice that Peter says that the blood of Christ is like a lamb without imperfection. Or without fault. He uses the term blemish there, without blemish or spot. Now what Peter is referencing here is what in the Old Testament was the way that believers atoned for their sin. They brought an unblemished animal as a sacrifice to God. And this act of sacrifice brought forgiveness to the believer. The only problem was is that you had to keep doing it. And by the way, that whole scene was a bloody mess. But you had to keep doing it. You had this, this system was endless until Jesus showed up on the scene. Because in the death of Jesus, the Old Testament sacrificial system was abolished. Because his sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice that brought, brought forgiveness to all who would believe in him. So how, how is Peter and why is he connecting the blood of Christ with the perfection of a lamb here? Well, this has everything to do with how there are inseparable parts of a whole gospel story leading to our rescue 
and redemption. Last week, Trey talked to you about how the incarnation of Jesus begins that gospel story in our time and space. Again, Jesus has always existed, but in the culture of man, the incarnation where, is where Jesus enters the gospel story here. And here in our passage, though, we see how Peter connects the sacrifice of Jesus with the next part of that gospel story, the sinless life of Jesus. See, in order for the sacrifice uh, to be once and for all, it had to be procured by a perfect sacrifice. It had to be procured by a perfect lamb. And Peter is saying, Jesus was that unblemished and spotless lamb. What is Peter saying there? To you and I, we're unable to live a life without sin. So Jesus, in his life, becomes our representative and lives the life that we should have lived as our representative on our behalf. And his obedient life fulfilled the expectations of the prophets of the Old Testament who expected God to both send a Messiah to rescue his people and to provide a, a, a sufficient excuse me, sufficient sacrifice for their sins. Jesus was both of those things. And as the second Adam, Jesus comes to provide his righteousness for his people who had inherited the unrighteousness of Adam. 1 John 3, 5 says it this way, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Jesus came in our time and in our space to take away our sins by, in part of the gospel story here, by being sinless himself. And being sinless himself, he was able to be the once and for all substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. He came, as the Nicene Creed confesses, for us and for our salvation. Jesus was that unblemished and spotless lamb. He came as the incarnated divine son to live a human life of perfect obedience and submission. So here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. There is an eternal object that offers you real freedom spiritually. And again, by eternal object, with a big O, I mean Jesus. Jesus is the one who offers you real spiritual freedom. Now, it is the entire gospel story of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, even the ascension of Jesus. Those all together make up this beautiful diamond of the gospel story. Those things are all working together to bring you spiritual freedom. But today, in a sense, what we're looking at is the second act of that story, the sinless life of Jesus, and how essential it really is. He lived the life that you and I should have lived but didn't. But it is through his perfect and holy life that Jesus can become the sacrifice for the sins of his spiritual children. Now, we're not going to do too deep of a dive on this, but theologians call what we're talking about here, what Jesus did in his life, as active obedience. The active obedience of Christ means this. Not only did Jesus take the punishment for our sin, but he also earned the reward for us. 
Here's what I mean. I want you to imagine this with me just for a moment. Two racetracks. And, and at the end of each racetrack is a circle. Now at the end of Jesus' racetrack is the victor's medal. They know he's going to win. Jesus is going to run a perfect race. And, and actually, we get to see him begin his race, and it is perfect. He never stumbles. He runs it perfectly. He never knocks down one of the hurdles. It's perfect. Now, the other course is your racetrack. You're slower than Jesus. So you see Jesus up ahead of you, but you're, you're stumbling. You're knocking down every hurdle. You're tripping other people up on the way. And as you come to the end of the course, you've noticed that Jesus slows down. By the way, for you, on the course you're on, the Bible says that those who run a race like that in life, uh, that race ends badly for you. It's a picture of what we do in our sin, right? And we just said this at the top of our time. Actually, the Bible goes really far, says the wages of that is death. Now imagine that Jesus comes to the end of his race. He's ahead of you because he's faster than you. And there waiting for him is the victor's medal. But suddenly, he cuts in front of you and goes over to your circle. And he takes the punishment that you should have deserved. Because at the end of your circle the whole time was the cutting block. The lights go off. And all that's left for you to do is to step over in the other lane into the winner's circle that Jesus was supposed to be in. And in that winner's circle, you get the medal. You take on a new identity. You have now taken on the identity of Jesus. His perfect righteousness is now your own. No more earning. No more striving. No more running. Friends, it's not just that Jesus took your penalty. But he also earned your blessing, your reward, the righteousness of God. And here's why that matters in the here and now. Some people say that if you stress the active obedience of God, if you stress, you know, like, like to lean in on his righteousness, it actually makes people lose the incentive to be holy. Like somehow it makes people think that they shouldn't repent of their sin or they don't have to deal with the, the sin in their life. But that is not the message of the Scriptures. See, Jesus, because of who He is and because of who we are in Him, already sees you as holy. You're already dearly loved. And now because of that, you have the freedom and incentive to actually go about putting on the actual characteristics of holiness. To know that God accepts you and to know that you're perfectly loved is the incentive to lead a godly life. See, if you're a Christian here tonight, inside of you is an old man and a new man. That means you still have a part of you who says this, even though I know God loves me, and even though I know I'm completely holy in Christ and all of that, I really need to earn my righteousness. You've got that part in you still. This bears all kinds of bad fruit in your life, by the way. My life, too. Bears pride, bears resentment. But the new man who is also in you, because of Jesus, the new person 
is the person that's preaching to your heart this gospel. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That's what the Bible says we get to say. Frankly, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to say that God wholly accepts you, therefore you have absolutely no incentive to repent of your sin. It's only when you know that you're completely secure in his love that you have the strength to look at your sins right in the face and admit them for what they are because no longer is your own holiness your foundation. The holiness and righteousness of God, that is. Friends, Jesus has secured for you a righteousness that you could not secure on your own in part through his sinless, perfect life. The unblemished, spotless lamb has done that for you. So believe in him. Trust in him. Behold the lamb. Find your righteousness in him. Walk in righteousness with his righteousness as your motivation. The things that Peter calls us to in verses 13 through 16 are things that we can do, should do, in response to what Jesus has done for us. But if we get that backwards, if we somehow think that those are the things that earn us righteousness, we will find that our spiritual lives are so frustrating. The good news of the gospel, friends, is that there is a person, an eternal object, his name is Jesus, who offers you real spiritual freedom because in his substitutionary sinless life for you, he lived the life that you couldn't live. Praise be to God. What a treasure we have in Jesus, friends. He has secured that for you. Let's behold that lamb. Let's pray together.